John chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. John 3, 1 to 8. You must be born again. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. Can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the source of all that is good. And we thank you, Lord, that your Holy Spirit is who we need. We need your Holy Spirit, and we need you to convert us, to cause us to be born again. We know, Lord, that it is impossible for us to do so. Therefore, Father, we ask that you would teach us and show us from your word, your holy commandments, these truths revealed here in Scripture, that this is what we need and this is what we must understand in order to have eternal life, to see the kingdom of God. We pray, Father, that we'll understand this better from this passage. For we ask in the name of Christ. Amen. John chapter 3 is a very famous passage. People refer to John chapter 3 simply as such. They also refer to John 3.16, one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16. But another fact about this passage that everybody is very familiar with is the name Nicodemus. People know the name Nicodemus also from this John chapter 3 passage because Jesus and Nicodemus have this dialogue that is a part of what we are studying for this message. John chapter 3, Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus is mentioned in verse 1. His pedigree is mentioned in verse 1. But we have to go back to chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, to see among the people that he is. Look at chapter 2, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem, Jesus was in Jerusalem, at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. In this passage, many believed in the name of Jesus, but they had an artificial or shallow faith, a superficial faith in Jesus because it was just 
that they believed he came from God because he did miraculous works. He performed signs, he performed wonders, supernatural feats that they had not seen before and they knew could only come from God. They knew that. That's the sense in which they believed. They did not believe in all that they needed to believe in the gospel to be saved from their sins. They did not understand the purpose of Christ, the identity of Christ in its proper sense. They did not understand that he must die for their sins and rise again from the dead. They didn't understand these and other truths to be saved from their sins. They just understood superficially about the miraculous power that he had from God. They believed that much. Well, the crowds did that, as it says in verse 23. Many believed in him. The multitudes did that. But in chapter 3 with Nicodemus, we have one example out of that multitude. We have one specific and personal example from the crowds. And in our case with Nicodemus, we have someone in authority. We have someone who is intelligent. We have somebody who is a teacher. We have somebody who should know about the things that Jesus tells him. He should already know about everything Jesus is about to tell him. So here we have a distinction now made, which John does and the scriptures do quite often. They speak of the crowds, but then they also speak of certain individuals or smaller groups and the comparison and the contrast of them. In this case, it would be easy to say, probably so, that the many are the hoi polloi. The many are just the, the dumb and the ignorant people who just follow like sheep, who don't know anything about anything. They are the ones who just see something, something amazing, and then they attach themselves to it. They are on the bandwagon. Or as today we know, certain politicians refer to the uh, American populace as those who are irredeemable and deplorable. You know, they're ignorant, they're, they don't know anything, they have no power, they have no money, they have no influence, they've got nothing like that. We don't need to esteem them at all. But in this case, we have somebody who is esteemed in the society. We have Nicodemus. So what the crowds did superficially in the previous chapter, now Nicodemus will do superficially as an esteemed figure of that society. Somebody who is knowledgeable, but does not have the knowledge arranged properly to save his soul from sin. He doesn't have it in that sense. He's got lots in his head. He's got a lot of power and even a lot of money, according to um, the history outside of the Bible. And even within the Bible, we have some evidence that he owned a lot of money. This is the example set before us. Someone who should know better, someone who is intelligent, and someone who is a teacher of the people, but he doesn't get it. The crowds don't get it and even the most intelligent don't get it. Well, how are the crowds going to understand it? And how are the intelligent, the brilliant, the sophisticated, the powerful, the wealthy going to understand it? We're going to see the answer in this chapter. The answer is, if God Almighty, by His Holy Spirit, who is more powerful than any human, any human brain, any human heart, any human arms and legs, this Holy Spirit... If he comes and does a work of transformation in the dead human heart, then salvation occurs. 
Only then will salvation occur. It will not occur in any other circumstance. The Holy Spirit has to come into the heart and use the Word of God to transform that heart from being dead to alive, from being a sinner to a saint, from being unjustified to being justified by faith in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit has to do that kind of transformational, miraculous work in each individual, whether he is a part of the ignorant and lowly masses of people or if he is among the aristocrats of the society, the sophisticated, the intelligent, and the wealthy among them. It doesn't matter who you are. God's Holy Spirit has to work for salvation to occur. But how does that salvation occur? Everyone will acknowledge the Holy Spirit has to do something. Almost everyone you ask within Christianity will say, yes, yes, we believe in the Holy Spirit. Yes, yes, the Holy Spirit has to work within us. We need the Holy Spirit. They will say that. But very few contemplate, very few study properly and accurately from the Scripture the relationship of the Holy Spirit to us in the proper way, the way the Bible explains it. And we will also see that matter today. So let's go back to chapter 3 and verse 1 and see how John presents this case of Nicodemus. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. We have a few descriptions of him. He is a man. And the men were to understand, they were to lead, they were to guide, they were to teach both in their families and the people, whatever their sphere of influence. He uses the example of a man in this chapter. In the next chapter, he's going to use the example of a woman, the woman of Samaria. So whether man or woman, this is what needs to take place. In this case, we're dealing with a man who is of the Pharisees. The Pharisees. The Pharisees came into existence sometime between the period of the end of the Old Testament, about 400 B.C., and the time of the New Testament, the time of John's ministry and Jesus' ministry and then the apostolic ministry. Sometime between the end of the Old Testament, 400 B.C., and by the time of the ministry of John, which would have started about A.D. 26 or A.D. 27, about that time, the Pharisees came into existence. And at this point, the Jewish people are under the authority and domination of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, which conquered the Greek Empire in 63 B.C. In 63 B.C., when this happened, now the Romans controlled this part of the world. And when they control this part of the world, the Jews are subservient to them. And even the Jewish officials or religious officials, the Jewish authorities, are subservient to the Romans. And they, in order to preserve their faith... One of the things they did was to make sure that they had their teachers, their authorities, their priests, their Levites doing what is necessary to be done in order to preserve their religion, in order to preserve their practices, in order to preserve their worship. And in this group of leadership of the Jewish authorities, we have the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, which comprise 
the makeup of the Sanhedrin, a body of elders of Jewish men, Jewish men, and these are the two main groups in that body of Jewish uh, leaders and teachers of the people, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Pharisees were more laymen, not priests and Levites. They were laymen, and as laymen, they were studious, they were diligent, they were the ones who were studying the Word and teaching the Word of God to the people, or the Old Testament to the people. This is what they would do. Not only that, but they would teach traditions, traditions invented, traditions connived and concocted by men, which Jesus condemns, right? He condemns throughout his ministry the traditions of men devised by the scribes and the Pharisees. The Pharisees, because not only did they study the Old Testament, but they added and they heaped all kinds of traditions onto the Old Testament to enslave and control every aspect of Jewish religious life. This is what they did. And Jesus condemns that because they have gone above and beyond what was written in Scripture. But on the other side, there were the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they were the priests and the Levites. And by this point, ironically, by this point in history, the priests and the Levites were more anti-supernatural. The Pharisees were not. The Sadducees were anti-supernatural. That is, they didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in spirits. They did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, the bodily resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they did believe in those things. So in terms of certain doctrines, they were sounder, sounder, better in their doctrines in some ways than the Sadducees. The Sadducees would be equivalent to today's academic professor of theology or the Bible because it has been overrun by liberalism, anti-supernaturalism. The average professor of the Bible does not believe in supernaturalism. He does not believe in miracles. Even in evangelical seminaries, even in Baptist seminaries, they don't really believe in it. But they can't always openly say that. Some of them do, but all, all of them don't always openly say that. But they really don't believe in the Bible. So the Sadducees would be, in a sense, equivalent to those kinds of people in Christianity, in our religion. Now, to show this example of a distinction between Sadducees and Pharisees, Matt, or Acts chapter 23, Acts 23, verse 6. Acts 23, verse 6. Paul the Apostle used to be a Pharisee. He used to be a Pharisee, and he knew that these distinctions. So when they arrest him, he deflects and makes these two parties fight each other. Okay? By the statements he makes. And verse 6, 23, verse 6. But perceiving that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am, on, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. And as he said this, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. 
And there arose a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. The Pharisees acknowledge that what Paul is saying is true. So why are we pressing the matter with him? Why did we arrest him? Why are we causing any kind of commotion about this? But the Sadducees disagreed. So he gets the Sadducees and the Pharisees to argue with each other and to avoid Paul being the target of their animosity. Well, with this, these kinds of doctrines, with these beliefs and assumptions, remember, Pharisees believe in the supernatural. The Sadducees deny it. So now when we come back to John chapter 3, verse 1, when it mentions Nicodemus, we're going to see how he believed in miracles. Because he, he's going to acknowledge that in verse 2, where he says, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. The Sadducees, they deny miracles. The Pharisees accept miracles. And because he believed that much truth, he was able to keep his eyes open enough in order to inquire with Jesus some more, to be curious enough to figure out who this Jesus was and what he was teaching. Furthermore, it says, it mentions him by name in verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1, Nicodemus. John the Apostle mentions him two more times in this book. And this is the only place, or, or yes, the, the place where he is mentioned would be in John chapter 7, John chapter 7, and verse 50. In John 7, verse 50, here again, the crowds are, are curious and they are debating each other and wondering what's going on. Then it's reported to the officers of the Jewish people, that is the Sanhedrin. In verse 45, it says, the officers therefore came to the chief priests and the Pharisees and they said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers said, never did a man speak the way this man speaks. The Pharisees therefore answered them, you have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this multitude which does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus said to them, he who came to him before being one of them. Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered and said to him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. And everyone went to his home. In this case, the Pharisees are debating and they are pushing back with these officers because these officers are curious. They're saying, now, this is not the average way people speak. There must be something to this Jesus of Nazareth. But these Pharisees are pushing back, but Nicodemus being one of them says, well, wait a minute. Well, wait a minute. Why are you judging this man Jesus so prematurely? You haven't checked the evidence. You haven't checked the evidence first. Verse 51, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? And they don't like that answer. They know he's right. 
but they just say, are you also from up there, from Galilee? If you're from up there, from Galilee, make sure there's no prophet that comes out of there because Jesus was from Galilee. His ministry and residence, temporary residence, was there. Okay, then another place is in John chapter 19 where Nicodemus is mentioned. John chapter 19. 19 and verse 39. Jesus is now dead. They have crucified him. And now it says in 1939, And Nicodemus came also, who had first come to him by night, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. And so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. For Nicodemus, remember we said there is evidence, even within the Bible, there is certainly evidence outside the Bible that Nicodemus was a very wealthy man. In verse 39, he came to use these spices for the burial of Christ according to the custom of the Jews, and he brought a mixture of myrrh, aloes, a hundred pounds of weight which would have been very costly to be able to own that much and to prepare a body for burial. This is the Nicodemus who first comes by night, but apparently by chapter 19, he is a believer and fully understands the faith. But at this point, back in chapter 3, he is not a believer. We know he's not a believer here in chapter 3, and we must establish this because of what it says in chapter 3, verse 10. Chapter 3, verse 10. Jesus answered and said to him, to Nicodemus, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? He did not understand what it means to be born again. And then verse 11, he says, You do not receive our witness. At this point, Nicodemus did not receive the witness of Jesus and his apostles. Verse 12, If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? There, categorically, Jesus says, You do not believe. In verse 12, Nicodemus is not a full believer or a true believer. He does not believe to the point that his soul is saved from sin. He doesn't believe to that extent. Yet, he has certain, certain knowledge, certain true knowledge, and he is watering that knowledge. He is curious and wanting to know more so that he might be saved. That's the point at which he is in chapter 3. Now, in verse 1, one more statement that John the Apostle makes is that he is a ruler of the Jews. He's a ruler of the Jews. By ruler, he does not mean political ruler because the Romans were the political rulers. By ruler, he means like a ruler over the Jewish people for religious purposes. And this is sometimes used for rulers of the synagogues, rulers or leaders of the synagogues. It would be akin to us the way we speak of pastors and teachers in the church. This is the kind of person he was. He had the authority and the rulership because of his esteem among the people, because of his life, 
his dedication to the meticulous obedience to the Old Testament, but also to the traditions of men, because he adhered to this meticulous obedience to the traditions of men and the Old Testament, they held him in high esteem as a ruler, and he, was, uh, he ascended to that position. Probably also, as it usually works, if you have money, you can find your way to the top. And probably that had a factor in this as well. Um, then, verse 2. This man came to him by night and said... Notice it says, he came by night. And it may be that he came by night in order to ensure that he could learn and protect himself because of what his comrades, because of what his companions in the Sanhedrin might think of him. And he did not want to prematurely deal with them. Perhaps that's the reason he came to him by night. We do know, though, in chapter 7, which we read, that he was willing, when they were openly discussing Jesus, to defend Jesus. And then we do know in chapter 19, though he first came by night, John said, in chapter 19, he does not come by night. He comes in the daytime and comes with the necessary herbs and necessary things that needed for the burial of the body of Christ. He comes in that way openly. But others have also Notice that among the Jewish people, there is also a tradition that it is good and right to study the law of God or to study the Bible at night, whether alone or with others, to study it at night. And there are a few pieces of evidence that they did encourage that kind of thing. So it may be that he was timid. It may be that he was just cautious and wanting to make sure that he had a private dialogue with Jesus. Or it may be because Jesus would have been accustomed to having people come to him by night to learn, as they would learn in the night and dialogue about the word of God. Whatever the reason, he asserts, verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Addressing him respectfully as a rabbi, even though Jesus was not formally trained as a rabbi, he did not go through the schools of the Pharisees to become a rabbi. He was still considered a rabbi because of his great knowledge and because of his consistent and accurate interpretations of the Old Testament. He even had that at age 12 to the amazement of the people right there in the temple. Amazement of the people. Remember at age 12, Luke chapter 2, he goes to the, to the temple and they were amazed at his questions. They were amazed at his answers when he was dialoguing with the rabbis there assembled in the temple. But now as an adult, his knowledge has, has been known to be immense and accurate. And therefore, even though he's not formally trained, he still identified as a rabbi among them. And Nicodemus further says, we know, we, who's the we? The we may be we as a representative of the crowds, the crowds just mentioned in the previous passage. Or it may be that he has been dialoguing with some of the authorities in his own council in the Sanhedrin, and there might be a few others 
who are curious and they know, they have to acknowledge that yes, this Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth has come from God, was sent by God to perform these miracles. And he is correct that Jesus came as a teacher because the signs are only for the purpose or mainly for the purpose of confirming to the people that they should believe what the teacher is saying. They should believe what the teacher is saying, not just stop at the miracles. Moreover, they, he says, these signs that you do unless God is with him. How would Nicodemus know that God was with Jesus with these miracles when there are miracles performed, false miracles performed all the time by many, many false prophets and false teachers, both in their day and throughout history? How would they know? How would they know? Well, let's see. Keep your hand here, your place in Deuteronomy 13, uh, in John, and go to Deuteronomy 13. Deuteronomy chapter 13. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 1. 13, 1. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true, concerning which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. This scenario is prevent, uh, presented. A prophet or a dreamer comes along. He says that, that we should go and serve other gods, and at the same time he performs miracles. How can you know whether he's from God or not? He performed miracles. They evidently look like they are good. It depends on his teaching. It depends on his doctrine. It's the content of his message. If he says... Yes, I performed this sign. You all saw the sign I performed. You saw the miracle, right? But now, let's go serve other gods, different gods. Let's go believe something else. If he does that, you know he's not from God. But did Jesus do that? No. Jesus kept pointing everyone back to the Old Testament, to the true doctrines of Scripture. He did not perform pretentious signs or trivial signs. So he didn't do any of that, but he also did not perform a true sign with false doctrine. He did not perform a true miracle with false teaching. He didn't do that. And they could see that he wasn't doing that. They could see he was not exploiting the people. He was, he, they could see that he was not mistreating the people. They could see that he truly loved the people. They could see that his teaching conformed to Scripture. So on that basis, he correctly concludes, as well as whoever else, when he says we, that Jesus was from God. And he's right. Jesus was from God. He knew this much too. He knew that Jesus was a teacher from God, a miracle worker from God, that the true God actually did send him. Remember, though, 
Just because he knows these truths doesn't make him a true and full believer. It just means that he believed in those things correctly, but he was not a true believer. And this is why, verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus knows what we've just been saying about Nicodemus. He knows this. Remember verses 10, 11, and 12, Jesus explicitly tells him that he does not understand, he does not receive, and he does not believe. And Jesus' answer to him in verse 3 is also an explicit way in which Jesus is telling him, you don't understand yet, you don't get it. You're right so far, but you're not right full enough. You need to understand something more to be saved from your sins. Also, we see in verse 3, Jesus does not receive the compliment. Jesus does not receive the compliment in the sense that he doesn't say thank you. He doesn't say anything like that because Jesus is not about deferring to people. Jesus is not about flattery. He's not about deflecting by talking about niceties. He's not like that. Jesus gets straight to the point. Yes, what he said was true and commendable to an extent, but Jesus does not go with that. He just goes straight to the heart of the matter. And straight to the heart of the matter is verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And with all seriousness, with all solemnity, Jesus is saying to him that this must take place. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So one has to be first born again, then he can see. Correct? Is that not what he says? You have to first be born again to see. If you are not born again, you cannot see. It's impossible. That's the sequence. Well, then, let's first answer the second part. What does it mean to see? What does it mean to see the kingdom of God? Well, in verse 5, he says something similar. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. To see the kingdom of God is equivalent in our context to enter the kingdom of God. To see is to enter. If we see, we enter the kingdom of God. So seeing is not physical seeing. Seeing is not partially seeing some spiritual truth, such as Jesus comes from God as a, as a miracle worker and a teacher. It's not that kind of seeing. What Jesus means to see the kingdom of God means to enter the kingdom of God. And to enter the kingdom of God is something that happens then and there. Because that's what he is teaching Nicodemus. This must happen to you now, right? Therefore, it doesn't mean, kingdom of God does not mean, if you are not born again, in the future, you will never get to heaven. He's not necessarily exclusively talking about the future heaven, though it includes that, certainly. He's talking about now. He's talking about having and receiving eternal life now. It begins now. 
and it continues throughout all eternity in the future. That's the kind of kingdom of God he's talking about. The kingdom of God is now. For example, Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Mark 1, 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. If one repents and believes in the gospel, then he enters that kingdom, right? He receives that near kingdom. It's at hand. And it's not in the future heaven, though that is a part of it. He's talking about what is to be received now. Entrance into that kingdom. Okay, if that's the case, let's go back to his statement, unless one is born again. What is the crucial, what is the critical and fundamental factor that causes one to enter the kingdom of God? What is it that makes one see or enter the kingdom of God? In verse 3, it is being born again. To be born again. That is the main factor. Before we explore this some more, just a clarification. Sometimes you will hear preachers speak of verse 3 and verse, um, verse 3 and um, other verses in this passage when he says to be born again. Do not marvel that I said you must be born again in verse 7. When he says these things, some say, Instead of being born again or reborn, Jesus actually meant born from heaven. You have to be born from heaven. Now, this word in the Greek language could mean born above or born from above. It could mean that. But in the context, it's very clear that Jesus, though he implies that it has to be something that descends from heaven and comes into us, that is true. He's not talking about that directly. Directly, he's talking about the need for a rebirth. And we know that because Nicodemus understood Jesus to understand rebirth. And he says, how can I enter a second time into the mother's womb? I can't do that again. He understands it as that. So we're talking about rebirth. So if we're talking about rebirth, what was our first birth? Our first birth was physical, and then our second birth, our rebirth, born again, regeneration. We were generated physically. Now we have to be regenerated. How are we regenerated or reborn? This is the issue. This is the question at hand. This must take place for us to enter God's kingdom, to be a part of his family. Unless one is born again. Now, why would Jesus use this illustration? When Jesus uses this illustration of having to be born again, he's using that which is obvious to everyone that has happened to himself physically, right? A physical, literal illustration is used to describe something that happens spiritually, and metaphorically in the spiritual world, right? He's using this illustration to describe what must happen to us between us and God. Now, then the question is, when we were born into the world, did we 
cause our birth? Did we cause our birth? No, we did not. If we did not cause our birth, then why would Jesus be implying or asserting that we caused our rebirth? If we didn't cause our birth, and he's using that picture to describe our need for rebirth, why would Jesus say, okay, I understand nobody causes his birth, physical birth, but you can and need to cause your spiritual birth or your rebirth. You must do that. It makes no sense. It makes no sense. So Jesus, when he says you must be, or one must be born again to see the kingdom of God, he's talking about something that has to happen by someone other than ourselves. Someone other than ourselves. What do we see that Jesus does not mention in these first few verses in verses 1 to 8? The verses at hand for us right now. He does not mention faith. He does not mention repentance. He does not mention good works. He does not mention holiness. He's not talking about that. That's not the context or this part of the context at this point in the conversation. Because in Jesus' mind, he wants Nicodemus to understand that which is most important, that which is most crucial that he must experience, that Nicodemus must experience for him to enter God's kingdom. And that is the need for rebirth. That is what is most important. But at this point, at this point, Nicodemus does not understand. He does not understand. So verse four, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Nicodemus knows that this is impossible. So why would Jesus say such a thing about the need to be born again, to enter God's kingdom? What's wrong with Nicodemus? What's wrong with Nicodemus is what's wrong with the average man. What's wrong with him is that whenever we hear something, even when it comes from the Bible, whenever we hear something, even when it comes from the Bible, even when it has to do with the doctrine of God, even when it has to do with the doctrine of Jesus Christ or the Holy Spirit, whenever we hear something that is coming from the Bible, our minds naturally think, of the natural world, the physical world, the material world. It's very difficult for us to get beyond that which is physical and look beyond it to the spiritual. It's very, very difficult for us to do so. It takes, if we're going to see it accurately, it takes a miraculous work of God, the Holy Spirit of God, to give us that insight, to give us that knowledge, correct knowledge, to understand and believe the truth. This is how much Nicodemus, his mind was so cloudy and muddy with everything that he and his companions in the council of the Jews, they had so filled their minds with things that were irrelevant. Those things that had darkened his mind, not illumined his mind to understand the scripture, but darkened his mind that when Jesus says something 
that is spiritual, immediately he thinks of the physical. That's not the way it should be. It should be the other way. So in order for him to understand the spiritual, Jesus' answer is in verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. We know by seeing, he means entering. By entering, he means seeing. He's using these terms synonymously in our passage. But here he adds a new expression. He doesn't say born again, though he means that. We know he means it from verse 3 and from verse 7, born again. But he clarifies what it means to be born again by using these two words, water and the Spirit. Firstly, uh, a few of the erroneous interpretations of this water. Uh, Erroneous interpretations first, and then I think the true interpretation from this context. The erroneous ones, some have taken water to mean the water of John the Baptist's baptism. The water of John the Baptist's baptism. That you must be baptized like John was teaching you, Nicodemus, to be baptized. Another, others say, no, it's not John's baptism, it's Jesus' baptism. You must be baptized with, by me or my disciples. You must be baptized with my baptism for you to be born again. So your rebirth happens with baptism. And then others may say, it doesn't happen by baptism such as immersion, it doesn't happen that way as John practiced and as Jesus practiced, and Jesus' disciples and the apostles. It's not that way. They say it's by sprinkling of water. The sprinkling of water on the infant, the newborn infant, that's a, a few weeks or months old, the sprinkling of water on the infant, that sprinkling needs to happen for that infant to be born again, to be regenerated to receive the grace of the Holy Spirit. That's what is needed at that time. And when the infant, in some cases, they believe, when the infant is sprinkled, when he's a few weeks or a few months old, then that infant is regenerated in the sense that his original sin is cleansed. It disappears. His original sin, he's, he was born in sin, He was born with original sin, but in order to remove original sin, that sin which Adam committed, he must be sprinkled with water. The infant must be when he's a few weeks or months old. Further, if one takes this water to be the water of immersion or the water of baptism, the water of sprinkling, some, just as... They believe that infants, when sprinkled, are regenerated and the original sin is removed. Others say that if you are immersed as an adult, immersed as an adult in water, the moment you are immersed, that's the moment you are born again. And all of your sins, not just original sin, but your original sin, if they believe in that, your Actual sin, whatever sins you have committed until you were age 20 or age 30, whatever the time 
of your purported conversion, when you get immersed, that is when all of your previous sins, original and actual sins, they're all cleansed. You're forgiven of all of them. And now salvation depends on you being faithful and working for your salvation, keeping your status as a child of God. They believe in salvation by works. All of these have to do with the belief in the water being actual and physical water. One more interpretation is that this water has to do with the water of the Word of God. The water of the Word of God. And they cite Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. 5.26. Ephesians 5.26. Ephesians 5.26. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. By the washing of water with the word. And they say that the washing of water, Paul means the word of God. The washing of water with the word, they take Paul to mean that the word of God is the water that cleanses. So you need the word of God and you need the spirit of God. That's how they take the word water. Now, this interpretation is less erroneous and less offensive and not not blasphemous like some of the previous ones I just mentioned. But this one, I think, is also falling short. I don't think he meant by water that he meant the word of God, though the word of God is necessary. And we'll see that in a moment, that the word of God is indeed necessary for us to be born again. So what does he mean by it? What does he mean? Look back at chapter 3 of John. John chapter 3. When he says, born of water and the Spirit, I believe he means the, the water which is a symbol of the Spirit. The water which is a symbol of the Spirit. I think that's what he means. And why is that justified? Well, firstly, in verse 5, the word and, in the Greek language, the word and has different usages or different translations. Most often it means and as a conjunction. A few times, sometimes it means but, according to a contrast being made. The word in the Greek language, which is normally translated and, could mean but or yet if a contrast is being made in the passage. Then, a few other times, it means that is. That is, or namely, or in Old English we say even. So he would say here, born of water, even the Spirit. Or born of water, namely, the Spirit. Born of water, that is, I'm talking about the Spirit. And why could we or should we conclude in that way? Grammatically, it's possible, or semantically, it's possible from this Greek word in verse 5. But now notice in this context, verse 6. Verse 6, when Jesus explains his statement of verse 5, what does he say in verse 6? That which is born of the flesh is flesh, 
and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. He doesn't say water. He just says spirit. And then in verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Remember, we said in verse 4 that Nicodemus, in his mind, he's only thinking physically. So in order to combat that, Jesus says, why are you thinking physically? I'm talking about spiritual things. So if I'm talking about spiritual things, I'm talking about the Holy Spirit. And that's what he meant in verse 5, because he mentions the Spirit. In verse 6, he mentions only the Spirit. And in verse 8, he mentions only the Spirit. We must be born of the Spirit. This is consistent throughout Scripture. It's consistent in this chapter, but it's also consistent throughout Scripture that we must be born of the Holy Spirit. Now, an example. An example from Ezekiel chapter 36 of the fact that the Bible does use the word water interchangeably with the Spirit. The word water with the Spirit. Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36. 36, 25. 36, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you, notice that word, cause you, make you walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. In verse 25, when he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, clean water that will make them clean, does God mean that when I sprinkle water on you, then all of your moral filth, all of your idolatry will be gone? No. The Bible doesn't look at physical things that way. Physical things in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament don't solve the problem of our fundamental internal and spiritual corruption. Our filthiness is not going to be removed by a little bit of water. Even if you pray over that water and call it holy water and sprinkle it on people, it's not going to work. Nothing's going to happen. The person who gets wet a little bit is going to walk away and and walk out of the door of the church building and continue sinning, just as he did before. He's not going to change his behavior. It's going to be the same. But in our passage in Ezekiel, he clarifies. He says in verse 25, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a new spirit. You have a stony heart. I'm going to give you a tender heart, a heart of flesh. By heart of flesh, he means a tender heart. And what's going to cause this transformation in the individual? Verse 27 says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. The the presence of the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the individual changes it from stony to new, or stony or old 
to new and tender, and He causes us to obey God. He causes us to obey God, to carefully obey God. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is indeed what Jesus meant in John chapter 3. This is what he meant, without a doubt, in John 3. Now, in the New Testament, we have one more example of this fact in Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Titus 3. After describing in the beginning of the chapter the way we used to sin, the the filthiness we used to have, Titus chapter 3, in the first part, verses 1 to 3, he reminds us of the way we used to sin. The filthiness, the way that Ezekiel described it, the filthiness that we had in the past has been changed. How did it change? Verse 4. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's not on the basis of righteous deeds, but it's according to the washing of regeneration. That's water, right? Washing of regeneration. Who renews us? By the Holy Spirit, verse 5 says. Verse 6, He pours out upon us richly this water of the Holy Spirit. The water is the Spirit. The washing, the renewing, the pouring out, the sprinkling from Ezekiel 36, this is the work of the Spirit. This is what Jesus meant, confirmed, both in context in John 3, but from these other passages of Scripture. So this is what Jesus taught. And then going back to John chapter 3 and verse 6, John 3, 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So when we are born in the world, the flesh, we are fleshly. And by that he means we are depraved and carnal. When we are born physically, we are also born carnally or fleshly, that is sinfully. We're born like that. And then in verse 6, when we are born of the Spirit, we are spiritual. Let's look at other examples of the same doctrine. The same doctrine. And this will be found in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. 519. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envyings, drunkenness, carousings, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. 
The flesh produces these things coming from our natural condition. Our natural condition born into the world, we are physical and from our preoccupation with the physical, we produce these corrupt things so that we sin against God. We have a corrupt nature when we are born physically into the world. And with this corrupt nature, we can't do anything about it. Romans chapter 8. We cannot do anything about it. Romans 8, verse 5. Romans 8, verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. For it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Verse 5, if we are of the flesh, our minds are of the flesh. Either flesh or spirit. There's only these two categories. Verse 6, the flesh produces death. The spirit produces life and peace. Right? Flesh equals death. Spirit equals life and peace. Verse 7, why does it produce death, the flesh? Because the flesh is hostile toward God. There is a war going on between the flesh and God. There's hostility toward God. And why is there hostility toward God? Because the flesh does not subject itself to the law of God. It does not obey the words of God. That's why there is hostility between the flesh and God. And not only does it not do so, the flesh is not able to do so, verse 7 says. The flesh is incapable, unable to subject itself to the law of God. So inevitably, there will be hostility, and this hostility will produce death. And then verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There is no way to please God if we are in the flesh. That's why we have to be in the Spirit. And then, when we return, return to John 3. When Jesus says this truth, the question naturally arises, well, if I have to be born again, and I have to be born of the Spirit to have life and peace, how does this take place? How does this take place? If one who is in the flesh is dead and has no life, then how does one have life? How does one transfer from being dead to alive? How does one change from flesh to spirit? From hostility to peace with God, life and peace. How, do, how does this transaction occur? And this is another of the critical questions we must answer. The popular belief, the most common belief within Christianity is that though we are sinful or have much sin, we don't have so much sin 
that we are incapable of exerting some spiritual energy, some spiritual work, some spiritual good, some spiritual use of our will to cooperate with the grace of God. This is the most common belief in Christianity, that yes, we sin, but we're not completely worthless and useless, that we are 100% impotent in our will or our works. No, we have a little bit of strength and enough strength so that when God's grace comes to us, it cooperates with us or we cooperate with the grace of God. This belief is the most popular belief. It is known by different names. It's known as synergism. Synergism, that is, we work together with God to save our soul. We do our part, God does his part. We come to the table with a business deal, and the deal is we need to save our soul. So both the businessman and his client, the businessman and his customer come to the table, they negotiate, and they do their part in order to shake hands and sign the contract. So before we can shake hands and sign the contract, we have to exert our part to cooperate with God. It's called synergism. That's one name for it. Another name is called semi-Pelagianism. Semi-Pelagianism. Semi because Pelagius, he was a heretic of about A.D. 400. This heretic Pelagius, um, his beliefs are not so common today, but semi-Pelagianism is. So first, what is Pelagianism and what is semi-Pelagianism? Pelagius himself He believed that every human born into the world is born pure, is born clean, is born without guilt, is born with the ability just like Adam had before Adam sinned. Adam in the Garden of Eden before he ever sinned, every human who's born in the world is born like Adam. Therefore, We don't need the grace of God. And in fact, the grace of God is offensive in his belief because all we need is a good teacher. We have everything endowed within us to do what is necessary for our salvation. So all we need is a good teacher to show us the way. That's what Pelagius believed. The church at the time fought against that the churches at the time fought against that. But then some of them believed in the correct way, which is what I will explain in a few moments. But others of them said, no, 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 he's wrong. But this other view is also wrong. The one that I will call the correct view, the biblical view, that that one is wrong. Um, What really we have to come midpoint, halfway. And so semi-Pelagianism came into existence. And semi-Pelagianism says, no, no, Pelagius is wrong. No, we are born into the world as sinners. Yes, we do sin. We sin. There's no doubt about that. The Bible teaches that, they say. However, we are not so completely bereft of any power. We're not so completely devoid of any ability because God's grace works within us In one way or another, God's grace cooperates with our abilities, our will, so that we do what we need to do and God does what he needs to do for 
for our souls to be saved. And this is how semi-Pelagianism came into existence, also known as synergism. Now, the opposite of Pelagianism is known by different names throughout history. It's known as Augustinianism because Augustine was a pastor and theologian who fought against Pelagius. Now, his belief on this was correct, although in some ways his beliefs were unbiblical. But on this issue, he was correct that no, Pelagius, you are wrong. Semi-Pelagians, you are wrong. We are not completely clean at birth, and we're not sinful so that only partially are we um, so sinful that we are impotent and yet we have the ability to believe. No, that's not the way it works. We do not cooperate with the grace of God. But what we need 100% is a miraculous work of the spirit of grace to change a dead heart into a living heart. We need God to circumcise the heart. We need God to do that which we cannot do. And after God does that, then we have the ability to believe and repent, which we will do. When God causes us to be born again, then we will believe. That's what Augustine believed. And then later in church history, in the 1500s, John Calvin, John Knox, and others in Europe, they repopularized this belief And that's why today it's known as Calvinism, because of that. And this is indeed the biblical belief. We shall see in just a moment. Now, a related question to this is the following. Does the Bible teach that we must first be born again by a 100% work of God in order to believe Or does the Bible teach that we still have the ability to believe, whether in the Pelagian sense or semi-Pelagian sense, we still have the ability to believe, which we must do and cooperate with God. And when we cooperate with God, then because we believed and cooperated with God, then we became born again. Then we were regenerated. What is the true Belief. It is the first, the former. That is, we must first be born again in order to believe. That, that's what Jesus is teaching here. And we will see from our next messages that Jesus will be teaching that in, the, in this very passage. But let's briefly go to a couple of other places to prove this point. To prove this point, that it must take the work of God first. Acts chapter 16 Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 16, verse 14. 16, 14. And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. It says that though she was a sincere worshiper of God, she was devoted to those kinds of things, she had a closed heart. Her heart was closed. It doesn't do to be religious. You need your heart opened. And it was not opened. Then how did her heart get opened? In verse 14. The Lord opened it. 
Because the Lord opened it, it was opened. It doesn't say the Lord cooperated with the human will to open her heart. It says the Lord opened her heart. And what was the response? What was the result? It says the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And what would be included in a response? After our heart is open, after our dead heart is alive, what is the next thing we do? We believe, we repent, and then from there other things flow out of it, right? We believe and we repent. That is the kind of response. And did she believe and repent? Yes, look at 15. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. If you think, she says, that I have been faithful to God, how? In this short span of time that Paul and Luke noticed a change in in this woman because the Lord opened her heart. She responded in faith. She responded in repentance. In verse 15, she responded in baptism. And here she's responding in good works. She is being hospitable to them. Good works. She prevailed upon us. She convinced them that she was a true believer. But that first took place because God opened her heart. This is the biblical teaching. God must first open the heart for the heart to be opened. These are the truths that Nicodemus was taught by Christ. This is what Jesus means. You must be born again. That the Spirit has to work in the human heart in order for one to be born again. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.